Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Your presence requested this evening's formal tablets, white giant Today's show, Art Against War and Capital, is about the socialist cartoonist Art Young. Because I'm invited to step out this evening with tablets, white giant Our music all comes from Irving Berlin. Our opening song is Top Hat, White Coat, and Tails performed by Louis Armstrong, off of the 1958 release, Louis Under the Stars. Berlin might seem an odd choice, but the time period is right. His first big hit came in 1911. And if you just think about what's been going on lately, it seems like we're living a kind of warmed-over amnesiac life, while being confronted with the same problems on a greater scale. I'm stepping out Irving Berlin was born in 1888 in a shtetl in what is today Belarus, and emigrated to New York City at the age of five, and was destined to be the greatest songwriter in the country's history. His songbook is America's songbook. Lyrics about freedom and liberty and money and sex and getting rich and war and a white Christmas and even how pleasant it is away down south. Perhaps Berlin's lyrics represent the dominant ethos in the U.S. Let's call this episode of Interchange its counterstatement. Our guest today is Michael Mark Cohen, an associate teaching professor of American Studies and African American Studies at the University of California at Berkeley, and the author of The Conspiracy of Capital, Law, Violence, and American Popular Radicalism in the Age of Monopoly. He's the creator of the website Cartooning Capitalism, from where I stole most of the rest of this introduction. Born in 1866, Art Young was the exact contemporary of W.E.B. Du Bois, though Du Bois would outlive him by 20 years, and he was about a decade younger than the great Indiana socialist Eugene V. Debs. Young was the most widely recognized and beloved cartoonist of the golden age of American radicalism. Spanning the age of Monopoly, 1877 to 1929, the Gilded Age giving way to the so-called Progressive Era. His images gave a visual design and humorous edge to a rising wave of socialist, labor, and anti-capitalist mass movements. His career stretches between his jailhouse portraits of the Haymarket anarchists, drawn just days before their execution in 1887, to a 4th of July picnic in 1918 with John Reed at the home of Gene Debs, just a few days before his arrest for giving an anti-war speech. Nearly unique in the history of political cartooning and the American left, as an artist, Art Young was capable of leading a mass anti-capitalist movement while also reaching deep into the mainstream of American media. While Young was the unpaid cartoon editor of the socialist magazines The Masses and The Liberator, he published everywhere, in newspapers next to the work of Thomas Nast, or liberal magazines like Life or The Nation. And for his troubles, Art Young was sued, censored, banned from the mail, and nearly spent decades in prison. Today, much of the history of American radicalism, including the work of Art Young, languishes in obscurity just when it's needed most. But be cheered. Along with Cohen's website, there are now two collections of Young's work in print, both out from Fantagraphics, To Laugh That We May Not Weep and Art Young's Inferno. I'm stepping out my tears to breathe the atmosphere that simply reeks with flesh. Yes, I trust that you'll excuse my dust gate when I step on the gas. And now, Art Against War and Capital on the cartoons of Art Young with Michael Mark Cohen on Interchange on WFHB.
if you don't mind, just give a brief bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, that kind of stuff, and then we'll go from there. I'm the author of a, a book that was published in 2019 called The Conspiracy of Capital, uh, Law of Violence in American Popular Radicalism in the Age of Monopoly. And, uh, and I'm the creator of uh, a website called Cartooning Capitalism, which uh, attempts to collect and um, make accessible to the wider, you know, internet clicking public, uh, a collection of uh, socialist cartoons from the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, the, that period represents a kind of dramatic flourishing of cartooning as an art form and as a vehicle of political communication and propaganda for a rising socialist and radical movement that had probably deeper roots and broader influence on American history than really at any other time, perhaps before or since. So uh, you, you mentioned the website Cartooning Capitalism, and um, that's from that's something that uh, uh, Eugene Debs said, right? An intro to the Red Portfolio, which was a, another sort of comics collection. Cartooning Capitalism is far more inspiring than capitalistic cartooning. Deb's writing, the true art of the untrammeled cartoonist is now being developed, and he will be one of the most inspiring factors in the propaganda of the revolution. And that's basically what you just said. <laughs> well, in that sense, uh, what Debs, I think, is talking about is the socialist cartoonist unrestrained by the limitations of what the that era would describe as the capitalist press, right? The pro-capitalist, pro-monopoly capital or the particularly sort of Democrat versus Republican sectarian press, which dominated American publications and, you know, urban newspapers in the late 19th and early 20th century, the era of yellow journalism and the Hearst and Pulitzer presses and things like that, that were rather tightly constrained in terms of their editorial purviews and their narrow adherence to sectarian or, in this case, partisan politics. And so for Debs, the untrammeled cartoonist would have been someone drawing images for left-wing journals, for socialist newspapers, for union newspapers that was not beholden to either a Democratic or Republican point of view and certainly not contained or captured by a pro-monopoly capitalist view. So someone who's in a position to um, openly criticize the capitalist system and openly espouse a socialist point of view. So I think in that sense, he's talking about the kind of censorship that comes through the capitalist domination of the uh, the press system. Mm. So this is not an era, right, in which there's the NPR or there's, you know, public radio, public television. These things did not exist at this time. You had purely, you know, for-profit journalistic outputs or outlets. And the Socialist Party, founded in 1901, uh, in particular, you know, really did press for, you know, its own publications. They needed their own presses, their own cartoonists, their own journalists, uh, their own uh, media outlets. And so I think that's, in a sense, what Debs is speaking of, is this flourishing in the late 19th and early 20th century of a popular left-wing press across the United States. Now, uh, that can lead us, I think, into trying to understand that flourishing as part of something you called uh, or have called the Haymarket generation, right? There's there's a kind of a point in time where you could see that particular event leading to, um, as you note, conversion moments for people. Yes. So in 1886, which is a key periodizing marker for U.S. history in a number of different directions, not the least of which is, you know, the 
Dr. Pepper is invented, the Statue of Liberty is dedicated, and um, the U.S. versus Santa Clara Supreme Court case grants the modern business corporation the rights of a fictitious individual, mm. though it has no body to save nor a body to incarcerate nor soul to uh, soul to save. At the same time, in 1886, the American labor movement, which had been building since the end of the Civil War, uh, towards a, a kind of key struggle on behalf of the eight-hour day in particular for industrial workers. And what you get is this uh, rise of an eight-hour movement that sweeps the country in the late 19th century, particularly in the upper Midwest, the urban upper Midwest, um, and the city of Chicago, which in the 1880s is the fastest growing city really in the world. And in Chicago, starting on May 1st, 1886, to what is since ever since then, world recognized as May Day, the red holiday of May Day, began a general strike across the industrial world on behalf of the eight-hour day. Now, what happens in Chicago in particular is that this uh, an attempt to crack down on the eight-hour strikes leads to police violence in multiple places. And the international anarchist movement, which had grown quite strong and well-organized in the city of Chicago, led a protest on May 4th, 1886, that led to a bombing of, of an act of violence in which the police attempted to assault a peaceful rally of anarchists. Uh, and in response, although to this day, no one is entirely sure who threw the bomb, but someone threw a, a homemade dynamite bomb into the police lines, uh, which exploded and killed several police officers, uh, leading to the first official red scare in American history in which the police uh, raided union halls, cracked down on protesters, and eventually arrested uh, a number of anarchists, um, eight anarchists in the city of Chicago, put them on trial for conspiracy uh, to murder uh, these police officers, and eventually the city of Chicago executed four of them, uh, despite the fact that, uh, again, the, the city of Chicago had no idea and, and did not put on trial anyone that they believed to have thrown the bomb. The judge in the case simply said that the mere fact that these people are anarchists makes them conspirators with those who built and threw the bomb. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Art Against War and Capital on the cartoons of Art Young. Art Young, like many others, was converted or radicalized by the injustice of the arrest, trial, and executions of the so-called Haymarket Anarchists. Young went on to become the best-known and best-loved radical cartoonist in the 20th century, publishing in socialist magazines like The Masses, as well as in mainstream periodicals like Life, The Saturday Evening Post, and The New Yorker. Here comes the freedom train. Uh, Art Young himself was caught up in this moment. He was working in Chicago at the time as an editorial cartoonist. Um, he did draw anti-anarchist cartoons that were, you know, demanded of him by the editorial inclinations of the newspapers that he worked for at the time. But perhaps most importantly was that Art Young actually traveled to Joliet Prison and drew prison portraits of the sort of, you know, the Haymarket anarchists. These, in, in fact, really quite uh, dignified and beautiful images of these uh, men. So Young was very directly involved in the Haymarket incident. And many years later, when the governor of Illinois, John Altgeld at the time, close friends with Clarence Darrow and others, uh, pardoned the three remaining anarchists saying that there was police and judicial misconduct of such an extraordinary level uh, that the survivors, those that did not face a death penalty, were um, eventually released from prison. And Young at that point really felt that not only had he 
uh, particularly when John Eldgale dies in the early 20th century, that Young had a moment of both conversion and reflection. He felt a deep sense of guilt for his participation in the railroading of the Haymarket anarchists, um, but that he also felt that he had contributed to uh, the discrediting and destruction, destruction of John Altgeld, who he came to believe was a, a good and principled man. Reflecting upon his own personal political failures, Art Young um, would, in middle age, you know, he was uh, in his 40s at the time, by about 1906, would convert to the cause of American socialism. Now, the Haymarket bombing of 80, 1886 then is a landmark in multiple ways in, in U.S. history. It, it marks a moment in which um, the American class struggle, in particular between organized uh, workers in, in the industrial fields looking to unionize and have a say in not only workplace and, and shop floor issues, but a greater say in terms of building and expanding an American democracy, in which the American class struggle after 1886 became increasingly violent. American labor history is the most violent version of uh, industrial labor history of any of the, the Western nations. Our, our American labor history is vastly more violent uh, than British or French or German or Italian labor history, um, particularly in this era. And you have this, this deep, deep uh, violent contention born out of 1886 uh, between labor and capital. And this growing violence and what is perceived as the deep injustice by particularly the immigrant working classes who uh, resisted and the the conclusions of the city of Chicago and the um, and resisted Red Scare and saw the execution of these men uh, after the Haymarket bombing uh, as the first real martyrs to the cause of labor and human liberation in the United States and it gets you generate waves of conversion narratives of American radicals. Um, people like Emma Goldman, uh, probably the most famous anarchist in U.S. history. She was uh, born in Russia. She you know, emigrated to the United States as a young woman, a J young Jewish woman who is quite attracted to, you know, initially the causes of labor and of the anarchist cause, who tells famously in her autobiography, Living My Life, the opening scenes of this was that when she first heard of the execution of the Haymarket martyrs, she faints and and t puts herself to bed and will say that she she woke up the next morning a committed anarchist dedicated to the cause of destroying global capitalism and the liberation of humankind and you get this wave then of american radicalism that sees not just the capitalist system as exploitative and injustice but the institutions and apparatus of the american state particularly the court system especially the judiciary as the enemy of human freedom of something that must be attacked directly and organized against in the interest of the liberation of the, the global working class. A greyhound who had lots of speed was surely bound to fail. For morning, noon, and evening, he'd be chasing his own tail. He was running around in circles. Running around in circles, getting nowhere. It's time for a break. This is Irving Berlin's Getting Nowhere, performed by Bing Crosby from the 1946 musical Blue Skies. When we come back, learning about labor movements frame by frame with radical cartoonist Art Young. Stay with us on Interchange. But seems he didn't know He was running around in circles 
running around in circles, getting nowhere. The man who runs a carousel is often heavy-hearted. He rides all day, but sad to say, he winds up where he started. So concentrate and clear your mind of schemes that never last. Or you'll wake up someday and find your chances all have passed. You've been running around in circles, running around in circles, getting nowhere, getting nowhere very fast. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Art Against War and Capital on the cartoons of Art Young. Our guest is Michael Mark Cohen, creator of the website Cartooning Capitalism. In this segment, we begin to trace the evolution of Art Young as an artist, who his models were, and how he came to believe that cartooning could change the course of the nation's politics. Oh, concentrate and clear your mind of schemes that never last, or you'll wake up someday and find your chances all have passed. You've been running around in circles, running around in circles, getting nowhere, getting nowhere, getting nowhere, very fast. Frequently when I do shows about labor history, it's, it's continually... Uh, um, made plain how hard the U.S. education system has worked to hide labor history. How labor history is is literally an unknown history for so many of us in the in the country. The violence of this period is shocking. I just am always confused by it. How do, how do we get to the place where labor is disappeared as as a, even a, a political stance? We need to go back to Art Young in order to reeducate ourselves about the ways in which we should be flabbergasted by the way we do business, right? You're absolutely right that labor history uh, has certainly been expunged from the curriculum for a whole host of reasons. I mean, I think that in the same way that the history of American racism has been erased, you know, there's these extremely simplistic narratives that were given that said, well, there was slavery and then Abraham Lincoln solved that. And then there was Jim Crow and, and Martin Luther King solved that. Uh, and so here we are in a colorblind utopia uh, in a country in which the African-American unemployment rate is twice that of white people without a college education, in which um, African-American wealth is accumulated not a single iota since uh, the 1870s. So, you know, we, we get the same sort of story, which was that, you know, American labor history had this contentious past, and then the New Deal solved all of that, and then we destroyed the New Deal and never talked about labor again, um, which is kind of where we are. But that is, is simply also not the case. There are large-scale labor movements that are having tremendous impact um, today, you know, in terms of the labor movements around low-wage workers, you know, workers in restaurants and the service sector. Um, and the, the response to the coronavirus is going to have to come or will, I think, inevitably generate some form of labor activism around trying to both put people back to work, but put people back to work with dignity, safety, humanity, all of those things, instead of what we really have right now, which is 
you know, the, the same things that were used in the 19th century, which is the fear of starvation, um, the fear of incarceration, the fear of state violence driving impoverished people back to work at substandard and dangerous jobs. In a very clear sense, the laissez-faire capitalist era of the late 19th century, often referred to as the Gilded Age, uh, is very much mirrored in our own, what is often described as a second Gilded Age, or what I think of as uh, a second age of monopoly. Right. So, you know, but, but I, you know, I'm in here in the Bay Area, and, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about gig workers unions and tech workers unions and why these things are so absolutely uh, necessary, not just for the life and living standards of you know, the workers themselves, but actually building democratic cities, building democratic states, building a democratic apparatus by expanding democracy beyond the kind of quadrennial voting process that we're in right now in which we get to select the particular names that support the gerontocratic plutocracy that governs us now and expand the space of democracy into the workplace, into the economy, into the essential decisions that do shape our lives far more importantly. Like the workplace shapes our lives much more dramatically than the state does for most people on a day-to-day um, right, right. you know, day-to-day uh, interactions. And so, yes, the labor movement is essential in that regard, but so too are the, the kind of political entities that grew up in and through them, including, particularly in Art Young's case, namely the Socialist Party, founded in uh, 1901. Michael, can we, can we jump ahead a little bit? I, I guess we could find a way to get Art Young from joining the Socialist Party to really uh, what I guess is considered his, you know, where he hits his stride with the masses and being a part of that. But how, how did he get there in the first place? How did he end up being in a position to to be one of the editors of the, the masses? Well, so Art Young was very well trained and committed from early uh, days to be a great cartoonist. He uh, believed in the power of cartooning from a young age. He was inspired by, I think, the right people, in particular Gustave Doré uh, and others. He was a kind of child prodigy drawing cartoons in his small Midwestern Wisconsin town. But he eventually went on to work then for big New York newspapers, big Chicago newspapers. And he worked directly under Thomas Nast, who was easily the most important political cartoonist in American history. Um, this was a man who invented uh, the iconography of the Republican elephant and the Democratic donkey. This is a man who invented the iconography of the bloated plutocrat with the money bag for a head. Abraham Lincoln uh, said that Thomas Nast was, was an essential figure for victory in the Civil War. Um, he's famous for the destruction of uh, Tammany Hall, the Tweed, Boss Tweed Ring. You know, he's a political cartoonist that brought down a political machinery. Um, and Art Young looked at, at Thomas Nast and really said, well, that's what a cartoonist can be. A cartoonist can impact politics, can, can really remake the political world um, through drawing these pictures. And while Thomas Nast was a committed Republican whose politics uh, pushed towards the extremes of nativism, Art Young nonetheless came away convinced that cartooning can change the world, that I can draw pictures that have a greater impact on politics and on society than any politician and their myriad policies. So he was well positioned in the late 19th, early 20th century, drawing cartoons uh, for a wide range of daily newspapers, of weekly magazines, uh, and his name and his stock was growing quite dramatically. 
when he converts to socialism in 1906, he begins to sort of look for um, opportunities to draw left-wing cartoons. Like, you know, any artist that, you know, cartoon artist that I, you can think of today, there is the need on the one hand to sort of make money on the one hand to keep yourself afloat and then draw cartoons that satisfy your political inclinations, your political desires and soothe your conscience, right? And so Art went looking for these kinds of opportunities. And when he joined the masses and he moves to Greenwich Village in the early 20th century, I think around 1910, and he begins to intersect with the kind of growing modernist bohemia in lower Manhattan at the time. While he is older than a lot of that generation, he becomes increasingly inspired by them. And so in 1914, he joins the newly created magazine, The Masses, as not as their art editor, but their cartoon editor. Freedom. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Art Against War and Capital on the cartoons of Art Young. Art Young, like many others, was converted or radicalized by the injustice of the arrest, trial, and executions of the so-called Haymarket Anarchists. Young went on to become the best-known and best-loved radical cartoonist in the 20th century, publishing in socialist magazines like The Masses, as well as in mainstream periodicals like Life, The Saturday Evening Post, and The New Yorker. Free to worship as we please. This magazine really brings together the kind of avant-garde of American artists and the Ashcan School of American Realism in the early 20th century and brings them directly into contact with working class radicals and radical journalists like John Reed who really the, the great American journalist of the early 20th century, the probably America's greatest journalist of revolution and revolutionary politics. So, you know, John Reed is in Mexico for the Mexican Revolution. John Reed is in Eastern Europe when World War I starts. John Reed then goes on to write the, the masterpiece of the Bolshevik Revolution, 10 Days That Shook the World. And he was close friends and comrades with Art Young. And so when Art takes over as cartoon editor of the masses in 1914, he all of a sudden now has as the platform that he can give his political beliefs and his political persuasion, his new kind of political conversion, a full-throated expression, generating cartoon after cartoon and image after image in which he denounces the power of monopoly capitalism, defends Eugene Debs and the growing cause of American socialism and the labor movement, and attacks the rising tide of American militarism as the United States looks to join World War I starting in 1916. And so Art Young will say repeatedly that the masses didn't pay me. I didn't get a dime from them. <laughs> um, it did provide, you know, the kind of coin of um, conscience that it allowed him to sort of ease his conscience for selling cartoons, you know, sort of sentimental cartoons to Life magazine and then drawing radical, angry cartoons for the masses um, at the same time. Is Young actually just cartooning? for the masses in this period before before he steps into an editorial role or um, do I have dates wrong? I think it's 1913 where the, the AP sues uh, Eastman and Young for their cartoon, which depicts Frank Noyes. I think that's right. Frank Noyes, who's the president, president of the AP at the time for um, – I guess, uh, citing or, or delivering news that was, uh, that was uh, beneficial to the coal companies in West Virginia at the time. 
he is definitely drawing cartoons and publishing cartoons in the masses pretty early, but he accepts the kind of editorial position somewhat later. Gotcha. But yes, his the drawings he did about the Associated Press, a lot of his best cartoons for the early days of the masses are to attack the capitalist press in this way. And it did indeed get him in trouble. And, you know, and Art, would not for the, the last time either, um, particularly in the masses, that he would be sued by the AP for defamation in a couple of cases for drawing cartoons criticizing their lack of journalistic objectivity, that they were, you know, that what uh, Upton Sinclair in a, a brilliant book on the study of American journalism called The Brass Check, basically accusing the American capitalist press, like d- describing them, you know, as, as harlots, you know, as prostitutes taking the money of big business and providing a mouthpiece for their, their, their interests. And while that was a clearly understood for, you know, Pulitzer and Hearst, uh, attacking the AP on those terms was a, 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 you know, an escalation of the issue. And it did get them in tremendous amount of trouble, but, uh, but trouble, you know, that, that was necessary. As the United States turns towards World War One, Art Young is drawing cartoons, uh, uh, you know, satirizing, lambasting European imperialism, attacking America's inclination and interest in joining the cause of World War One. The United States government under the Wilson administration begins a systematic and really ruthless crackdown on any dissenting voices against American entry into World War I. Uh, the Espionage and Sedition Acts passed in 1917-1918 made it a crime to assert that the United States war effort was being fought on behalf of the big banking interests. That was illegal. Which is, of course, why the United States got into the war. Like it, when it, you know, the U.S. had to get into World War One because it was beginning to look like the Germans might win, and J.P. Morgan would not be able to collect on the loan payments he had made uh, to the British and the French. And but to suggest that could end, you know, you could end up in prison, and people did end up in prison for suggesting exactly those things, including the editorial board of the masses. So Art Young, Max Eastman, John Reed, and others were put on trial twice for attempting to interfere with the draft, which had been called in support of World War I, and to defame the war effort. And so these men are put on trial uh, for conspiracy to undermine the American war effort twice, both times ending up in uh, a hung jury. And it's important to remember that at this point, one of the jurists actually said to Jack Reed after the second trial, well, it's a good thing you all are nice white American boys, because if you had been those foreign radicals, we would have deported you to Russia, which is, of course, what happened to Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman and others. So, I mean, Art Young literally faced 20 plus years in prison for drawing a cartoon. Yeah, and it's a great cartoon. Editor, the capitalist, the politician, and the minister having their fling is the title of the cartoon. And the the devil's orchestra plays a song and they they do their dance on behalf of the work of the devil himself, right? Of encouraging the United States to enter World War I, to become an imperial power, to crush dissent at home, uh, to censor the press, to silence dissenting views, uh, and to build... A repressive apparatus that includes the Justice Department, the FBI, the, what will eventually become the FBI, um, and encourage widespread vigilante violence against labor organizers, against the Socialist Party, against the industrial workers of the world and others in what would become the kind of orgy of violence and murder and destruction that is the Red Scare of 1919 in the United States. 
It's time for another break, and another one from Irving Berlin. This is Freedom Train, a 1947 recording by Peggy Lee and Johnny Mercer. When Interchange returns, we'll ask Michael Mark Cohen which of Art Young's cartoons he finds most iconic and instructive. Stay with us. Where the engineer is Uncle Sam. Here comes the freedom train. You better hurry down. Just like Paul Revere, it's coming into your hometown. Inside the freedom train, you'll find a precious freight. Those words of liberty, the documents that made us great. You can shout your anger from a steeple. You can shoot the system full of holes. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits. Located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. Peggy Lee, Benny Goodman, Margaret Whiting, the Pipers and the Western Band. Setting on the observation, spreading freedom through the land. You can write the president a letter, you can even tell him to his face. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is scholar and author Michael Mark Cohen, and our subject is the socialist cartoonist Art Young. In this segment, Cohen details two of Young's iconic cartoons to unpack the ways these deceptively simple images do so much more than make us laugh or nod our heads in agreement. If you hate the laws that you're obeying, you can shout your anger to the crowd. We may disagree with what you're saying, but we'll fight to let you say it loud. That's how it's always been. That's the way it's gonna remain. So is there a particular cartoon of uh, Art Young's that you think really sort of encapsulates what he could do? What is quintessential Art Young and this captures so much so simply, uh, but yet becomes kind of an iconic image? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there are two cartoons that I would go for. Uh, that I would name in that category. The first of which um, is a cartoon simply labeled Capitalism that depicts the bloated plutocrat wearing his tuxedo, sitting at a table that is overflowing with both dirty dishes and food just pouring out both all, all over the table and, and onto the floor. And the capitalist is tipping back in his chair with this fat cauldron of food, pouring it down his insatiable gullet. And as he tips back, we see that he's essentially leaning over a void, a chasm. He's about to tip backwards over uh, a cliff into some kind of abyss. And of course, this evokes, on the one hand, I think, you know, Karl Marx's evocation of the capitalist ideology, après moi le déluge, right? After me, the flood, that I consume what I wish, I accumulate capital without uh, moral regard, and what happens after me, you know, is not my concern, right? This belief that the capitalist class here, embodied in a single body, personified, uh, if you will, in a way, in this, this tuxedoed white, male, bloated figure who simply consumes and consumes without conscious, without satiation, 
right? This capacity of the capitalist system to accumulate endlessly beyond any reasonable or even necessary bounds, and yet necessarily will come upon contradictions that will lead to crises. So when that capitalist is finally poured out that vat of whatever it is, right? And of course, there's no workers, there's no cooks, there's no waiters, there's no farmers, there's no uh, food processing, you know, canners or factory workers available to be seen, right? They are all fetishized out of the system. All there is are commodities for this capitalist to consume. Uh, but that once he has consumed and consumed and consumed, eventually the idea is that the chair will tip backward and he will fall off this cliff. And one can see that represented in the crisis of 1929. One can see that in, I think, the current ecological crisis that we find ourselves in, in which the capitalist class can consume without restriction, without limitation, without any fetter until we actually begin to realize that it is killing the biosphere. That if we continue to consume at such unequal and astonishing rates, that we're literally going to destroy the atmosphere, the water, the earth, the planet that sustains us, right? So this is one of those cartoons drawn in, in 1920 in which capitalism is personified that rings to me quite true with the current moment we find ourselves in. Yeah. And this is a very austere, simple, quite beautifully composed image. It's not complex in its illustration, but it is vastly complex in its conclusions, its critique, its understanding of what capitalism is and does. So there's controversy around the cartoon that um, originally it was going to be published in Life magazine with a caption that just labeled it as greed. And Art Young did not like that. He did not want it called greed. He wanted it called capitalism. And so he republished it in his own journal with the correct caption. And this is an example of what would happen when Art Young would try and publish his radical cartoons in mainstream or liberal magazines. They would attempt to defang it, to sort of remove the kind of radical intent that he placed behind it. Uh, and so this was part of the kind of ethical struggle that Art Young constantly found himself in um, when he's trying to both uh, publish in radical cartooning outlets, but also in mainstream journals. And why the, why the editor always shows up and <laughs> dancing along to the devil also. But it's important, I think, on the one hand, while, you know, I can be critical and, uh, you know, I want to be critical of things like Punch and Life and others that are published in, it is important to recognize that they knew he was a socialist. That way, he didn't disguise that. And yet, as a socialist, Art Young found ways into mainstream American journalism. He was that, that radical cartoonist who had a voice in the mainstream, who could cross over and speak to much wider audiences, at, in particular by doing so on a moral level. Mm. He could address, the cartoons were quite simple, they're quite direct, they had a, a kind of allegorical uh, significance to them. The style is quite direct, you know, these kind of black and white simple line drawings with these established casts of characters that he would present that was accessible to anyone who could look at them. And so they were quite popular in the mainstream press, and this was a way in which Art Young um, could push a kind of socialist progressive message in the mainstream press through these deceptively simple images. Freedom. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Art Against War and Capital. On the cartoons of Art Young, Art Young, like many others, was converted or radicalized by the injustice of the arrest, trial, and executions of the so-called Haymarket anarchists. Young went on to become the best-known and best-loved radical cartoonist in the 20th century, publishing in socialist magazines like The Masses, as well as in mainstream periodicals like Life, The Saturday Evening Post, and The New Yorker. Free to worship as we please. So the other one I would I would point you to is a, a masthead image from September 1921, and this is a more complex image, in which you have the bloated plutocrat again now sitting on a pier, holding the rings that you would throw to a drowning man, right? So the capitalist is sitting on the pier, sort of lazily dangling his toes in the water. Piled up behind him are stacks of these life-saving, you know, um, life jackets and flotation devices that are labeled as the necessities of life. And he then sort of peers over, blowing smoke out of his fat cigar, looking down at an increasingly restive ocean of hands, of drowning men and women falling, you know, into poverty, despair, and death. And the capitalist looks at this scene and says, you know, there's no market there. The, these people uh, can't buy, they can't afford to buy the necessities of life. Thus, I, the capitalist, though I hoard the necessities of life, um, the, the logic of capitalism and of exchange, the production of exchange values uh, necessitates uh, that I sit here calmly and watch these people drowned, though I have the life-saving means at my disposal. And in this is not only a kind of moral critique of capitalism and what's at stake in the cost of living, but what you have here is a really full-throated expression of what socialism intends to provide, which is to find a way to take the necessities of life and take them out of the hands of profit-making capitalists and provide it to the people so that they can simply survive. You know, the the, the sense that, so, you know, my, my slogan for socialism is transforming hysterical misery into ordinary unhappiness since 1848. <laughs> This, you know, I, I don't have, you don't need utopian visions of socialism. It's just simply that, like, we, we want to be able to provide the basic necessities of life to ordinary people so they don't have to suffer from a lack of housing, a lack of food, a lack of education, a lack of public services, um, the, the basic things of life. But when those things are held and wielded exclusively by capitalists, rent, food prices, right, uh, education, etc., um, what you find is the drowning masses and the hoarded resources of the capitalists. And so what you have in here is, you know, this could have been quite been an effective illustration of the opening chapters of Capital Volume 1 by Karl Marx, in which he talks about the dual nature of the commodity, that the commodity has a use value, right? These life-saving, uh, these life jackets could be used to rescue these people who are drowning. But what capitalism is is the production of exchange values. Mm -hmm. Capitalists manufacture things not because they're useful, but because they can be exchanged for money, because they can generate profits. And if you can't sell an item, it has no value, though its use may be of life-saving significance. So you think of um, what ins the price of insulin, for example, right? 
This is the production of insulin is hoarded by the capitalist pharmaceutical companies. And though it is a necessary ingredient of human survival for people who have diabetes and need insulin, um, capitalism is not going to give it to them to, for free just because you're going to die if you don't have it. They're going to extract the maximum value out of this because they make insulin for purposes of profit, not because it is a necessity of life for people who need it. So there's a very sophisticated critique of capitalism contained in this cartoon. But someone who just simply looks at it can understand pretty explicitly what's going on in the relationship here between big business and uh, the impoverished masses. You can see the relationship quite directly. And because it is this allegory of, you know, the capitalist with the life-saving life jackets and the drowning masses, because that's not a literal depiction of class relations, one can imagine scenarios, right, uh, that directly impact or grow out of working class existence in which this cartoon can relate explicitly. Money, 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 money. Money, money, can you use any money today? Money, 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 nice new bills that we're giving away. There are photographs on everyone, Lincoln, Grant, and Washington, or you might like the ones with Henry Clay. Can you use it's time for our final break. This is Irving Berlin's Can You Use Any Money Today? performed by Dinah Shore from the 1950 musical Call Me Madam. Stay with us for more on the untrammeled cartoonist Art Young when Interchange returns on WFHB. Bills that haven't been printed yet you can have them by the sack. Coins that haven't been minted yet that you never have to give back. Money, 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 Uncle Sam puts it right on the Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. Money, 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 we've so much that it gets in our way. In our treasury there's a mighty sum Millions we've subtracted from The envelopes that hold our take-home pay Can you use any money today? Home in the States underground There's a cave full of gold Welcome back to Interchange. Our program is Art Against War and Capital, and our guest is Michael Mark Cohen, author of The Conspiracy of Capital, Law, Violence, and American Popular Radicalism in the Age of Monopoly, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. In this final segment, we explore the ways Art Young could draw sentimental cartoons for the liberal press that would open the door for the more critical and revolutionary images in the socialist magazines, a kind of one-two cartoon punch. You can have mine, all of mine. You can have mine. A lot of Young's cartoons have uh, drunk, uh, wealthy, plutocrat businessmen at tables talking about how the poor, the problem with the poor is that they take their money and they drink with it. Yeah. Um, the issue you know, is the hypocrisy of this class that makes people poor and then complains about the things they do that won't get them out of poverty. 
and he does this time and time again. It is amazing too how how easily you can convey these particular ways in which we denigrate certain classes with these attributes, right? While these attributes are the they're the attributes of the wealthy class, right? Uh, the, the the profligacy, the you know, the waste, the the lack of work ethic, you know, all the things that that the the wealthy say is the problem with the poor. And it's it's captured in, in one image easily, always. I, I think that's very well put. And I think what becomes important about Young's approach, what renders it distinctive is its allegorical understanding that, that this belief, this desire to personify social forces and then set them into the melodrama of class struggle um, in which, you know, it's not just Jeff Bezos or, or Mark Zuckerberg castigating poor people and denigrating them or, you know, Kim Kardashian just being lazy and wasteful and, and so on. But it's an entire class. It right. is the capitalist system. It is the plutocracy that is um, committing these acts of hypocrisy. So I, in a certain sense, what I would say is that while an individual capitalist or an individual politician is capable of being hypocritical, when it happens on the level of class, it's a structure. It's a system. Mm -hmm. It's not just a single figure, right? Yeah. And and while, I mean, on the one hand, I think that there's something fascinating. There's a, there's a contradiction here in that Marx in Capital is very clear that says like, Okay, personifying capitalists is dangerous, right? We, we shouldn't do that because what we are interested in here is not um, the capitalist, but capitalism. Right. That the capitalist himself is really um, an agent of a system that extends beyond their individual agency. Right. And that we have to see the capitalist as capital, as Marx says, endowed with a will. I don't have any evidence that Art Young read Das Kapital. I, I'm in fact, I'm probably pretty sure he didn't. But there's this belief, right, that while for the systemic thinkers, like that's really quite useful. If what you're trying to do is build a, a multilingual, multi-regional, multi-factional socialist uh, movement, these kinds of personifications, the dramatization of uh, these social forces, is an enormously effective propaganda tool. It's an enormously effective ideological and political weapon. Right. Uh, if, if you can just pick up one of these cartoons and get its its significance right away, that's a that's a powerful um, messaging uh, tool for a social movement. And it's as easily done in the cartoon where the little boy and uh, little girl are, are staring up up at the stars and, and commenting that the, they're as thick as bedbugs. You know, the the way in, in, in which you sort of dramatize the humanity um, that expresses a kind of common human wonder and in, at the same time expresses their poverty is, an, is sort of the flip side of, of, of characterizing the, the capitalist class. You know, the flip side is characterizing the impoverished. I, I mean, that's also a beautifully done cartoon, and it, it speaks to uh, Art Young, the New Yorker, and his solidarity with um, the the urban poor. But it is also an example of the kind of the, the Art Young's more sentimental side. What did gain him the kind of access to Life magazine and The Nation and Metropolitan magazines and things like that? That that kind of sentimental side that you know the, the poor though they suffer are noble 
though they suffer, they, um, their relationships in their lives matter, that we should come to see them. And, and through these middle class progressive projects of reform seek to ameliorate their suffering. So uh, this is, this is Art Young leaning into the kind of liberal progressivism uh, on the one hand, as opposed to the radical anti-capitalism on the other that finds its way into the masses and the liberator and good morning and the like. And I, I think both cartoons uh, have, a, a tremendous expressive capacity, um, but it is Art Young was very conscious about which kinds of cartoons he was drawing for which kinds of audiences. Right, right. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Art Against War and Capital on the cartoons of Art Young. Art Young, like many others, was converted or radicalized by the injustice of the arrest, trial, and executions of the so-called Haymarket anarchists. Young went on to become the best-known and best-loved radical cartoonist in the 20th century, publishing in socialist magazines like The Masses, as well as in mainstream periodicals like Life, The Saturday Evening Post, and The New Yorker. Here comes the freedom train. It is one of those uh, things in which you have to try to understand uh, the work of the artist and the audience and the idea of, of being able to capture a particular sentiment or sentimentality that might lead you in the next frame to be able to see things differently if they're not as uh, sentimental, if they hit harder, if they punch in a different place. And I wonder about that in terms of his oeuvre, right? In terms of how he, he's able to make money off of this kind of, of cartoon that you'd see in the New Yorker or, or some other place like that, that is an aw shucks kind of cartoon or is a, a precious moments kind of cartoon, even though, it, even though it critiques the awfulness of life when you, when you look up at the stars and compare them to bedbugs, it has a tiny sting to it. Right. It's not it's not a massive punch, but it is a tiny sting. And the idea is, you know, can that tiny sting make someone available for that punch? I agree with you. I think that there is that sense in which he is welcoming people in. I mean, I think one of the, the distinctive features of Debsian socialism of the American Socialist Party of the early 20th century was the, the ways in which uh, it welcomed people in. It, it sought opportunities for people to access what was at stake in American socialism uh, and to popularize and tell stories about their conversion narratives. Mm -hmm. So there is a clear sense in which, yes, these cartoons that he's selling in these liberal magazines really are trying to pull people in to, you know, the, you know, the lives of the poor actually matter, the lives of industrial workers, their exhaustion, their relationships, their suffering. This matters that these are, are noble people um, who are committed to their own survival and their own liberation and that, uh, and that we can see their humanity. We can see their deprivation. We can see the humor in their lives, even the humor that grows out of that deprivation, and then seek to understand how to ameliorate that. How do we, you know, these two children looking up, you know, coming out of their tenement, probably somewhere in lower Manhattan, looking at the, at the sky. On the one hand, how did these children find themselves in this situation, right? What, what does their living situation look like? How do we make their lives better? And this belief that, you know, if one can have empathy for these folks, if one can um, see the humanity of these images, the subjects of these cartoons, then one can be brought into thinking about how do we create the change necessary uh, to liberate these people, to give them the freedom um, and the opportunity that they deserve as Americans, as humans, as um, people 
who are subject to all of the same foibles and limitations and sufferings as the rest of us. That working across to a wider audience is essential. That particular image doesn't express destitution, pain, sorrow. You know what I mean? It's it's a boy and a girl holding hands and being, I guess, loving in some sense, right? They're staring up the stars. Um, but the question of tenement living, of of slumlords, you know, these are things our Art Young, of course, also took took on. But imagine a cartoon in which a rat gnaws on a baby in a crib. Like, I don't know if there is one, right? I don't know. Yeah, but but that's a reality, right? So yeah, so so the reality. I don't know that you could publish that particular cartoon, right? Um, that would be more than radical. That would simply be what documentary. Um, well, what you get, what you have there. I mean, although of course you just you know you're evoking Gil Scott Heron for me here, but um, right. you know what 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 you would find in that. I I, I again that might not be the iconography that that I I haven't seen that drawing but what you're looking at there in a sense is the confluence that you found in the masses between the Ashcan school of american realism the armory show of 1913 the graphical um drawings that appeared in the masses magazine not just by art young but people by you know stuart davis and um uh, john sloan um uh, Sherwood Anderson, like, uh, you know, uh, um, like a, a whole range of artists, Boardman Robinson, um, you know, uh, Maurice Becker, uh, and others that, that did do that kind of work, you know, that really did, you know, draw and, and expound, expand the bounds of what we would think of as American realism. That, you know, in that, that late 19th, early 20th century expansion of American realism, which really is, you know, in a sense, the opening up of the bounds of representation. What kinds of things can we commit to high art, to literature uh, in these ways? And that kind of suffering, that kind of misery, uh, that I, I think becomes typified by, you know, I, I don't know the, about drawings, but what I do know is that there are plenty of scenes with rats in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Mm. Right. Which would, you know, and art knew Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair was a big, so you know, was uh, probably the most prominent American socialist of his generation, him and Jack London. Uh, and they most definitely depicted those kinds of scenes. Right. The, the jungle uh, from 1906 being probably the most important in that regard. Hmm. So there is a sense in which these thinkers and artists and writers are all in the same kind of uh, milieu. Right. in which the lives of the poor are being depicted in these startling, you know, eventually what would become revolutionary ways. Look at the crowd up the avenue. Oh, don't you know where they're going to? They're on their merry way to turn night into day. Dressed in their best, they're a happy mob. Two, two or two, they'll be on the job. If you care to join them, just hurry along, follow the crowd. That's our show. We'll close with Follow the Crowd, recorded in 1914, written and performed by Irving Berlin. World War I began in July of 1914, and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was re-elected in 1916 under the banner of staying out of the war. The U.S. entered the war in April of 1917. Thanks to Michael Mark Cohen for joining us today and providing so much information about the great Art Young. The address of his website on the work of Art Young is cartooningcapitalism.com. Go there and be ready to recognize our world in his. What difference does 100 years make? I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. 
Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Come with me, you're gonna be so proud. Don't stay behind, go where you'll find thousands of dreamy things.